Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, the podcast all about our tricky relationship with stuff and how to fix it. I'm Ali Moore from ReLondon, and I'm joined today by a guest host, which is our own Hannah Carter, um, I'm delighted to say, who is the campaign manager for Love Not Landfill, our sustainable fashion campaign. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm really glad the podcasts are back because I think it's been a while. It has been a while, yeah, but I think it's safe to say this one's going to be worth the wait because we've got a really great interview lined up for today. And um, I'm imagining that because it's about textiles and the fashion world, you're particularly excited about this one? Yes, I really am. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about this brand before this guest came on for the podcast, but yeah, I've learned a lot and really, really excited about what they have to say. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a chance last year to speak to Duncan Money, who is the head of social and environmental impact at Rafa. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Rafa, they're a really brilliant sportswear and lifestyle brand that specializes in cycling gear. Um, They're headquartered in London, so they're they're one of our own. Um, But they've got stores or what they call clubhouses across the world from Miami to Melbourne. Yes, and they've got a really well-established and loyal community of cyclists across Mm. the world who attend these hubs and and really sort of buy into all of the the brand ethos and the philosophy. But why particularly are we speaking to them about circular economy? Uh, Well, Rafa has made in the past year some really impressive social and environmental commitments, which you can find if you go onto their website, um, including a pledge to reduce their collective emissions by 45% by 2030, They also champion an approach to clothing production that's, I think, disappointingly rare in the industry, which is to make clothing that really lasts. Um, And they're working to grow their repairs service as well. So you can buy something from Rafa. A, it will last a long time. But B, when it when it starts wearing out, you can take it back and it will be fixed. So all around pretty exciting stuff, I think. Yes, it really is. And I think the focus on durability and really this effort to extend the lifespan of their product is something other businesses that make apparel should really take note of. If you think of fast fashion and this whole idea of making clothes that are just, you know, made to be worn once or twice and and will disintegrate after a couple of washes, then, you know, a brand that has has got this into their ethos and is thinking about this for every piece of of clothing that they make, I think is, is something that everyone should learn from. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Yeah. So in my chat with Duncan, we talked a lot about what Rafa's already doing to make their business more sustainable and more circular. And we talked a bit about where they hope to go in the future. I think loads of the ideas and the principles that we'll hear Duncan share today can certainly be transferred to other contexts beyond sportswear, which is to say that businesses big and small could learn from today's conversation. So enough of our chat. Let's hear from the man himself. Here's my interview with Duncan Money. Duncan, lovely to meet you. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? My name is Duncan Money, and I'm the Head of Social and Environmental Impact at Rafa. Fantastic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Rafa and what you do for those of our listeners who don't... I can't imagine why they wouldn't know who Rafa is, but um, a little bit of an intro? (laughs) No, perfectly fair, yeah. So um, Rafa is a cycling clothing brand. We basically make everything except for the bike, and our purpose is to make cycling the most popular sport of the world. And we typically do that through sort of three main channels of creating absolutely beautiful cycling clothing, uh, telling a wide range of stories to 
make cycling into an aspirational lifestyle and creating a community of like-minded people around the world. Uh, we've got stores, uh, 20 different stores all over the world, and, and we have what is called the Braffa Cycling Club. Uh, we are the largest global cycling club. And we sort of bring people together to experience the best aspects of the sport. And we're looking to do that more and more over time. Great. I live in northeast London in Hackney and um, I've been to the Spitalfields Cafe once or twice. Do you have cafes a lot as part of that community building? Is that what they're for? Yeah, so there's quite a lot of what Rafa did sort of uh, since the, uh, the beginning, really, that have actually sort of become quite commonplace. But every single one of our stores, which we call clubhouses, um, because they're, they're supposed to be effectively that, where people can kind of come and congregate and watch cycling and kind of share in their nerdy passions together and sort of feel like they belong there. Uh, every single one of our clubhouses is always a retail space paired with a, a cafe space. So we've always sort of been, um, there's this excellent sort of connection of coffee and cycling, and, and we've sort of celebrated that across all of our stores, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, there's a lovely one on Brewer Street, I remember seeing. I don't know if it's still there, but... Um... That's the one, yeah. It is our flagship store. It was our first store. It's where I started out as a, oh, really? a ride leader eight years ago at Rafa. Well, it used to get paid to take people into the to the Surrey country lanes. Oh, so you're and, a cyclist uh, as well. Oh, yeah. I'm sort of Rafa kind of 1.0, sort of uh, the black and white grainy imagery of suffering, which we've kind of slightly stepped away from <laughs> a little bit recently, which is, but it's kind of our, our legacy, as it were. And I, I was drawn in by that. Yeah, no, it's it's lovely imagery. It really is. So I've had a look at your commitments that you've made recently to reduce emissions and achieve various other social and environmental impacts. And they're, they're a really impressive range of impacts that you're after, some of them around sort of more social issues like diversity and uh, supply chain well-being, which I, I really like to see. But because obviously we're a circular economy podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the more emissions related ones. So I noticed that you made a commitment to reduce your collective emissions by 45% by 2030, which is obviously like lots of people were talking originally about 2050 and slowly we're seeing more and more people talk about 2030 as a much more challenging target. It's pretty ambitious. How are you planning on achieving that emissions target? Yeah, it's an interesting one itself, isn't it? Just even just the target alone, because like you say, that the kind of the percentage and the time frame kind of keeps shifting and quite rightly so, as we kind of have less action in the present means we have to have greater action in mm. by the future. Mm. And that 45% by 2030 aligns with the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, uh, which right. is what Rafa is a, a member of. So quite quickly, we just sort of aligned with, with that because that way every single brand that's a member of that community is then striving towards the same goal. We have common tools, et cetera, and we, we have suppliers in common. So we're all kind of pushing in the same direction um, for the same target. Although I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that goes up to 50% or even 55% as you're seeing sort of based on like the US targets and so on as well. So what we're looking to do in the next six to eight months is to set uh, a science-based target. So we will map out our carbon baseline and then plot that trajectory all the way down across each of our scopes. And um, we'll use that to really help us sort of create like a carbon budget on an annual basis and really actually start incorporating that into our um, sort of holistic accounting of, uh, of our performance overall so how is that reflected against our revenue figures and so on so in terms of like the exact percentages by which date that's sort of yet to be determined by setting the science-based target but that said i think there's lots of people who kind of are waiting to set these really precise targets before they take action and that's not what we're doing because it's 
really clear what needs to be done because of the sort of broad range of research that's out there. And ultimately, you know, our business model yeah. isn't that different from other people who have already set the targets and taking action. So we're quite aware that uh, the vast majority of our emissions as, a, as an apparel retailer is in our scope three emissions. Um, so anywhere between sort of 80 to 90% of our emissions are going to be in scope three. And I have a feeling that the sort of audience of this podcast understands what that means, but just in, in general, we expect that the broad range of our emissions to be in material extraction and then conversion of those raw materials into fabrics, um, which makes sense really, right? Right? Is that if you're pulling something out of the ground and turning it into a highly desirable luxury fabric in beautiful colors, um, you can wear against your skin for hours at a time. It's probably taken quite a lot of energy to get that from one state into another. So the, the focus at the moment uh, really is to to tackle our um, materials portfolio. And that's how the one of our impact commitments is to transition 90% of our production volume uh, to using environmentally preferred materials by 2025. And that is a, a, a massive undertaking and, and really sort of resembles a, a complete like transformation of our uh, materials as a whole. And we expect that to make a, a considerable dent in our overall footprint. That's fantastic. So what, when you say environmentally preferable materials, I mean, the amount of conversation and chat you see, particularly amongst consumers, about what is environmentally preferable mm-hmm. is often very misguided. What, what's your definition and what kind of materials are you thinking about? So the fun thing about the way that we've structured this is that it's not my definition, it's the textile exchange definition, uh, yeah. which I am very pleased to be doing because it means that we can just basically keep following the science, keep following the experts. So every single year, Textile Exchange, which is another organization that Rafa is a member of, um, produces a a report. So we we follow the Textile Exchange's definition of environmentally preferred materials. And our material portfolio isn't actually that broad. So it's predominantly synthetics like nylon and polyester and then um, natural fibers like cotton and and wool. And the environmentally preferred versions of those are are recycled synthetics or organic natural fibers and an animal welfare standard derived animal material. So what that doesn't get into is biosynthetics. It doesn't get into end of life biodegradability, et cetera. And it hasn't gone beyond organic into looking to sort of regenerative land practices, et cetera. So I kind of think we're Mm. in the sort of the entry phases and there's some that can go even further, but ultimately it's a transition from non-renewable to renewable yeah and you talked about biodegradability there was something about compostability of products in your um, impact statements how are you going to do that I'm really <laughs> yeah. intrigued by compostability like end of life compostability is like do we bury our clothes I don't, I don't quite figure out how that works precisely and i think we're still at the phase we're asking ourselves those same questions as well so that that target specifically is that 50 percent of production volume will be compostable or recyclable at end of life by 2027 so there's a few things in there. 2027 is the furthest date we've set in, for any of our impact commitments. And I think that's wise considering how unknown this area is. Mm-hmm. And we were quite specific to include that compostable or recyclable. And really what it is that we're doing there is just aligning with um, you know, the, the model of circularity, the classic sort of butterfly diagram in that if I was speaking in more technical terms, I would say that 50% of production volume will either fit into the technical cycle or the biological cycle. Yeah. Um, And so I think I kind of wanted to leave that door open because I didn't want to always have to recycle everything in the sense that we have a lot of our materials are um, 100% merino wool or 100% um, organic cotton. 
and if those are natural fibers that are safe and could be sort of put back into the biosphere as just part of the composting program then that might be an easier step as opposed to trying to get that natural fiber into a recycling program where the staple length would uh, get shorter over time and so yeah um, it's something to, to be explored i've left the door open there essentially so one of the things that obviously you're known for is having a really kind of high quality durable product that you repair so can you tell me a little bit about the repair service it's funny because it's a little bit like our clubhouse program uh you know in the way that we've always had a a coffee shop in with our retail space it was something that we did because we thought it would sort of elevate the customer experience and now it's kind of become quite a common thing to sort of combine these two things so when we look back to the repairs program we've only recently really started looking at it through the lens of circularity to be honest and it's always been a a customer service tool essentially is that we always wanted to deliver a high quality premium product and a high quality premium sort of customer touch points and it was reflected in our our packaging used to be really elaborate and you know, we, we've always had really great customer service uh, in, in sort of how we deal with people as well. So I think we've always just seen it from that point of view that if you're going to buy a product at the price point of a lot of our jerseys or bib shorts or whatever, then you deserve for us to sort of take care of you down the road. Mm. Um, and I think uh, it used to also be like a, a crash repair service. So I was chatting with our team the other day and the average time frame that a lot of our products are repaired on is within the first year that you've bought them. So people tend to buy a really great product and go out. And then within the first year, they've yeah. crashed in it. And that doesn't mirror how long we intended for these products to last in terms of like how well that we mm. built them. So in some ways, it's about kind of making sure that just because you've crashed it and you've got a hole in the knee of your bib tights or whatever, that product shouldn't then become redundant because that, that feels superficial. So um, it's all about getting people back on the bike, essentially, and making sure that people can in- continue to enjoy the, the sport of cycling without having to fork out a new pair every time that they have a mishap. Yeah, so it's all feeds back into your core mission, doesn't it? 100%. Yeah, and building that community again. So what do your customers think about the repair service? Do you have any sense of how many people use it or any kind of figures around it? Like, do you know what kind of volume of stuff you've saved from being chucked away because you've repaired it or...? Yeah, so since launch, so Rafa was founded in 2004 and we've always done the repair service for free uh, so far. And we, uh, since then, we've done 34,000 repairs garments and I would love to have that by weight. I would love to have a, a carbon figure diverted from landfill and so on. But but at the moment, it's, it's 34,000 units, which is considerable. Consider each one of those is a bespoke repair. So someone will send in something and, and we'll find a material that will color match and, and we'll try to get it back to as original standard as possible. And, uh, you know, every crash is unique, so every repair is unique. So I think we should be incredibly proud of that 34,000 figure. But it's, it's interesting to think about ways to scale that because it might be that we have people sending a product in to be repaired that actually is only the size of a, you know, like a 50p piece or something. Mm. And actually this year we launched uh, our mountain biking collection and we, with that, we launched um, a repairs patch that came with the vast majority of those styles. So actually 29,000 units that went out have these repair patches that are made from excess material from the manufacturing process in the first place. So it's interesting to think about different ways of approaching repair is that we can do repairs that are sort of centralized and quite sort of intensive in terms of the logistics and customer touch points and so on to get people back on the road. 
or we can find ways to simultaneously reduce waste in the manufacturing setting whilst also putting repairs into the customer's hands for these kind of like fairly small issues. Yeah, I'd be really interested to know because we we run um, a, a repair week every year to promote repair skills and repair services across London. Mm. And I, I'd be interested to know how many of your customers actually use those repair patches and feel confident in doing those repairs. Do you ever do do you ever do like repair workshops or anything? So we, we haven't run any yet. There's growing interest in, in all of this, obviously. And I would love to do a survey basically to this end as well, because uh, y- your questions are exactly my, my questions as well. Right. Our traditional repairs service, uh, in terms of where people send it into us and so on, we get excellent feedback, and it's always considered to be something that you know is like a, a loyalty tool as well. And that we know if we repair something for someone, they're going to come back because you know they know they can trust us to take care of them in the long term. And just before yeah. uh, coming to this, I was sort of looking through Twitter, at sort of seeing what people's responses are, and anytime a repair is mentioned people will sort of also comment and say oh, i've had rafa repair my jacket or my shorts and they've always done such a great job etc so qualitatively I, I i believe that it is something that is definitely well received in terms mm-hmm. of usability you're, you're totally right one of the things that we made you know necessity for the, our repair patches with our mountain biking collection was that they're um batched with a solvent and you can apply them with an iron at home Oh, super easy then. Yeah. yeah. So it's not something we're asking people to sew on themselves or, you know, thread a needle, etc. They can just sort of get the iron out and stamp it on and off you go. Nice, nice. But loyalty is a thing there, isn't it? You, you use the word loyalty. And I was thinking about presumably then loyalty is the reason why you're concerned about durability. Because um, so often have the conversation as well about fashion, the fashion market and how durability is at odds with having kind of good commercial performance. But you yourself just said loyalty is the thing so where do you stand on that that durability versus sales thing yeah i i quite enjoy this question because i think it really gets to the root of maybe how people are, are not seeing the opportunities sort of inherent within durability in that number one if you if you've got a highly durable product and, and you bear in mind we're in the sports space as well so what is durable on a on a bike has to be sort of extra durable in, in sort of like normal circumstances in terms of the amount of pedal revolutions that it needs to uh, withstand over different environmental conditions etc you can't get away with having a product that, that isn't durable in this space so number one it's always just sort of the baseline for the sports industry particularly sort of outdoors sports is is just so much higher so n- number one it's just part of what equates to quality first and foremost but the other thing i think about when people sort of are implying that a highly durable product is somehow counter to commerciality is that it implies that people only buy from you every time that their old product has worn out. And cycling clothing aren't like light bulbs, you know, it, it, or fashion in general, because I know your your listeners will be fully aware of the concept of emotional durability and how that kind of doesn't fully align with uh, physical durability. So there's people are always going to be looking to the next thing. The question is, how are you monetizing that process just as much as any other and ultimately if we if we're existing within sort of the linear business model of only being able to sell people new things then you have to constantly shift the goalposts of what is desirable to get people back in the door and i think that's the thing that consumerism is obviously sort of um, got such a bad reputation for as it kind of feels quite superficial but when you're dealing with a product that's highly functional like cycling clothing then you have to be able to give people the functionality that they're looking for over the time period they're looking for. It's just sort of part and parcel of, of what equates to a high quality product. 
And ultimately, I think the reason why people consider it to be against some commercial aspect is because it's a systems limitation. Mm. If, if a product is highly durable, it means it can go through the system multiple times. And it means that it'll withstand multiple users within it with a single lifespan. And I think that the, the metric at the moment that people are looking at is um, how much value can we get out of this customer over the lifetime? And therefore, how much can we sell them? Whereas if we looked at it as how much value can we get out of this product over its lifetime, then it, you would flip it to how many people's hands can we get this product into? Yeah. You talked about the take back scheme as well in your in your impact statements. And when are you going to be doing that? And how's that going to work? Do you know? We looked to set that by the end of 2022. And we are focusing on that more from a donation point of view and in pursuit of our purpose to make cycling the most popular sport in the world. We're trying to get excess products out of the hands of one set of consumers and get it into the hands of people who don't have what they need because they can't afford it. So we focus first and foremost on uh, donation and that sort of transition of from those that have to those that don't have. But beyond that, it, it becomes a quite a natural extension of that is to look into resale and rental and subscription. Um, part of which we've already sort of experienced and sort of played around with a little bit with our um, uh, in our stores, we rent Canyon bikes at the moment. And if you're a member of the uh, Rafa Cycling Club, then you can travel anywhere in the world, go to a, a clubhouse and you can rent one of the, the world's best bikes and ride a bike there. And all you need to bring with you is your, is your cycling kit, which if you ever traveled to another country to ride your bike, taking your bike with you is the most stressful thing in the world. <laughs> it's your pride right. and joy and you have to sort of imagine. Check, check it in. So we've already had this experience of what it is to sort of give people this idea of how you can use cycling as a service. And, and again, how can we start to extend that out to our products as a service as well? If you want to give mountain biking a go, do you really need to buy all the mountain biking product to just to sort of give it a go and see if you like it? Or can we sort of share that with you for a brief period and then you, you can come back and see if you want to keep doing it, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. I'm personally intrigued about where that some of that clothing will go. It's just thinking about sort of local kids cycling clubs and things like that. Is that the intention? Is that what you're thinking about? I would love for it to be as localised as possible. It, a lot of our stores already have connections with the local community and are already in a habit of doing that quite sort of um, intuitively. And mm. I think the the plan is to sort of try to formalise that process for our internal operations, but then also sort of be able to bring our customers into the into the journey and quite naturally the raft cycling club is split up into regions so we have like a uk base and, and a, a miami base etc cetera, etc cetera. and it would be quite clear to try to align those customers with the needs of the people in their communities so that we're not kind of shipping products around the world it just makes sense yeah but the, the challenge that we obviously have which is maybe a little bit unique to the cycling industry is that the thing that probably people most need to get into the sport, the most cycling specific garment is the cycling bib short and the cycling short with a pad built onto it. It helps you ride your bike for longer and more, more comfortable. And yet where it's worn directly against the skin, it's something that has got a bit of like a yuck factor about it in terms of if you share that with another person or not. So there are kind of these interesting challenges around like you know, consumer behavior. Yeah. Cause that might sort of close down quite a lot of opportunity. So how do we sort of, overcome that is, is an interesting challenge yeah. in itself yeah well you, you're doing obviously so much and have got such high um aspirations around this it's it's really impressive so we're interested in giving people things that they can 
practically do themselves to help with the climate crisis and to become more circular in the way that they live. What what would you say to consumers at the moment looking for something that they can do to help with the climate crisis? Possibly something specifically around fashion behaviours? I, I'm almost going to take my, my Rafa hat off for a second and just sort of speak to the need to consume less, essentially. The uh, British Fashion Council, I think, on the 23rd of September, just came out with a uh, report all about the necessities to halve the production of, of new clothing on an annual basis. Wow. Yeah, essentially the, the need is uh, if, if you reduce the demand and you reduce the production and you reduce the emissions, it's quite sort of like a, a fairly sort of linear equation in that sense. And, it, and it's quite brutally honest and probably undeniable in, in the sense that if you require less, you make less and, and everything that goes along with mm. that. But that is to say actionable things that people can be looking to do is to if you are going to buy new, I think it really pays to invest in the future that you want to see by spending with the companies that are doing good. And that means sort of doing your research and, and fully getting involved. Um, you know, I, I look at the traffic figures for how many people read our sustainability page, and it's a, a complimentary amount of people that makes me feel good about the fact that we have one. But I would love to get to the point where people really are inquisitive and, and sort of asking questions because that's what provokes internal debate and ultimately change. So the consumers in general are enablers of the system. Then they're not the people who are going to drive the change themselves. They, they can't go into the businesses and, and literally sort of, you know, alter the, the purchase volumes up and down. But people will follow the money. And if the money is going one way rather than another, because people are choosing to sort of buy um, in, in line with their values, then the, the sort of data-driven organizations are going to follow that. And it, 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 there'll be a, probably a frustrating lag to that. But that's where I think aligning or spending money with, with leaders in the industry is the most important thing in my mind. And probably to extend that outside of fashion is just to say that if you care deeply about fashion, then there's probably lots of other things that you can care just as deeply about. And it's about sort of being consistent in your application of those values across every other aspect of life. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, what's giving you cause for hope at the moment? It feels like there's a, a lot of bad stuff happening. Um, but what's what are you hopeful about? It's a, maybe a, a slight contradictory way of saying this, but I'm, I'm hopeful because of the amount of fear that is out there at the moment in terms of th this is a very tangible moment in time in terms of like how terrifying everything is. And mm it seems to me to be an inevitability that action is like just around the corner based on how blindingly obvious it is that we need to be addressing this. I think that there is a huge amount of momentum. It's also become very clear what needs to be done. I think that that's a really big thing for me is that the ambiguity side of things is actually really diminished now. And now it's it's less of a case of the, the what or the why and more a case of the how. And as leaders sort of come up in businesses and, and how it becomes clearer and clearer, which I think is happening, then we're really going to see things really accelerate. And I, th I think that's something that, yeah, that gives me hope. Fantastic. Thank you, Duncan. So Hannah, what did you think of that? I thought it was really good. I loved it. And um, I've been, as I said, I've been interested in Rafa for a while. So it was really fascinating to gain more insight into the business and get a sense of where they're headed. I also really enjoyed hearing some of the creative ideas and their experimentation around repairs. The self-adhesive patch, iron, the iron-on patch that is made from excess materials. I think that's such a brilliant idea. 
I do too. I love, I thought that was fabulous. It's that, that kind of thriftiness and that kind of care and concern about every little bit of material is, it just makes my, my heart, my heart saying, I love it. Yeah. Um, I also loved what Duncan said near the end about what consumers can do about the climate crisis and his emphasis on this need to consume less, which is the kind of the, the heart of it, isn't it? And and we talk about that at ReLondon, don't we, even though it can be quite contentious? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really difficult one. But as Duncan says, it's, it's actually quite straightforward. When we consume less, we reduce demand and production, which means less emissions. But it's really difficult to convince people to do that because we're bombarded with advertisements with clothes you know is you're under pressure to wear something new every time you go out on social media or you're out in real life and a lot of products and clothes particularly are not built to last and and all of these things contribute to their culture Mm. of constantly buying and buying and and buying stuff that we don't actually need yeah yeah it's and that's so tricky and we we see it don't we in the love not landfill campaign all the time that particularly with younger people you know, changing changing habits when overconsumption is the norm, and when we're told again and again by uh, our younger audiences that if they've been seen a few times on social media wearing the same outfit, they're not going to want to wear it again. And yeah, I think it's yeah. it's difficult, but there are ways and means of of tackling it, probably. Um, and Rafa, obviously, doing great work. So this actually leads quite nicely into a new segment that we're introducing to the podcast, which is we are from this point going to be wrapping up every episode with a few very simple recommendations of what we can all as individuals tangibly do right now in this moment to help make a change and to help tackle the climate crisis. So we want people to leave the show not feeling despondent um, after hearing some of the more challenging topics that we discuss. Although I have to say today's topic has has left me feeling pretty hopeful rather than hopeless Um, but um, instead we'd like listeners to feel a bit empowered and to offer them some simple actions that they can take today. Yeah I really like this idea and I think it's important to have a balance of discussing very serious pressing issues at hand while also being proactive Mm. and actively working towards solutions I think that's going to be empowering for people to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So based on my chat with Duncan, here are a few concrete actions that you can take. So firstly, buy less. Uh, I mean, it sounds simple, but um, set yourself a challenge. The next time you go to shop for new clothes, ask yourself a set of really straightforward questions. Do I really need this? Why am I buying it? And is there something already in my wardrobe or my chest of drawers that I could wear instead? Um, A rule that I have when I find something that I like is to wait at least three days before I buy it, which is obviously easier to do if you're shopping online. If you're out and about at the shops, that can be quite a difficult thing to persuade yourself to do. But um, I do actually sometimes I wait up to a month before buying something. I'll go back and look at it repeatedly um, if I'm shopping online. Um, And sometimes I forget about it, which means it probably wasn't worth buying in the first place is my feeling. Um, sometimes you really do want it and you keep going back and then you will actually buy it. And that's okay because you obviously wanted it a lot. Um, but other times you realize you probably just didn't need it that badly in the first place. Um, so that's our first recommendation is buy less and wait. What's the second one, Hannah? So the second recommendation is to do your research. So start just looking into the social and sustainable practices of the brands that you're buying from. So this this can be a bit difficult sometimes um, because the companies you want to buy from sell products at a higher cost and, and maybe financially this won't be feasible for everybody. But we're not here to make anyone feel guilty. We can all help 
tackle climate change in so many different ways. So about buy, you could buy secondhand instead of new. But if you feel that you're in, in a position to buy more sustainable brands that may cost a bit more, start supporting the businesses and brands that you believe in. And mm. it might mean you're buying fewer items and shopping less frequently, but also getting in touch with those brands and, and challenging them a little bit. Yeah. And um, it made me think of um, Arja Barber's book, Consumed. She's actually got text that, that you can copy, whether it's put on social media or in an email to the brands to ask more about their sustainable practices. And then you can you can find out a lot more information and, and brands are getting much mm. better at responding to this, I think. Yeah, that's a that, that that's really handy that she provides those sort of templates yeah. to make it super easy to ask the right questions of of brands and retailers because um it's something that we that we've talked to our our panel of youth mentors on the Love Not Landfill campaign about in the past, isn't it? And really yeah. encourage them to go and ask the questions because yeah. if companies get the, get asked the questions, then they'll start thinking about the answers and they right. might do something. The more people who ask, the more likely they are to change. So yeah, and and we can see with brands like Rafa, the the possibilities are out there. You know, they're mm. they're really really working hard at it. So so and and a lot of the brands that are doing well at, at the sustainability are very very happy to share their practices so more and more it's becoming possible I think mm, yeah and I really like that line from Duncan as well he what was it he said if you're going to buy new it pays to invest in the future you want to see by spending with the companies that are doing good um, yeah yeah I really, really liked that them. as well it and this this idea of of the perceived value of clothing being much higher so you know mm. if you're buying a t-shirt for for three pounds then you know you don't necessarily you're not going to value it the same as if you spend a bit more on a piece of clothing that's been really made well built to last that will be repaired you're buying something that there's no reason you won't have that forever so yeah, exactly. I think being able you know the more brands that are doing things like that and are thinking about how to to tell their customers that these clothes are really really high value I think I think yeah. that's a, a really good way to be going yeah, price versus value, always a good thing to think about. Yeah. So, of course, in addition to buying less and being more selective about what you're buying when you're buying new, um, a good reminder there from Hannah about secondhand. So the importance of reusing and sharing clothes remains something that we bang on about here. Um, buy vintage, host a clothing swap with friends, share things on sharing platforms. Um, there's so many ways that you can still express yourself through your clothing and change up your wardrobe on a regular basis, but they're a lot easier on both the planet and your wallet. So, so don't stress if you can't afford those high, those high cost sustainable brands at this stage in your life. Well, that was great. Thank you, Hannah, for joining us today. Really nice to have a, a fashion and textile specialist on the episode. Yeah, thank you for bringing me on for this one. I really, really enjoyed hearing all about it. It's been great. Yeah, it was lovely to have you. Thanks very much to Duncan Money for taking the time to speak with me. And as ever, thanks to all of you for listening. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at relondon underscore UK and use the hashtag revolution of stuff to get involved in the conversation. And we'll be back soon with another episode. So that's bye for now. Bye.